0: Revelation 1, verses 1 through 8. The revelation of Jesus Christ to to which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it the time is near John to the seven churches that are in Asia grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ the faithful witness the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth to him who has who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and father
1: And this morning, uh, we're going to continue on. Uh, and, and really what we're going to do today is hone in on the second part of verse 4. Uh, last week, we went verse 1 through 4. And this week, we're going to hone in on the second part of verse 4. Uh, and, and really catch some of the, the meat that is present here to these seven churches. As they are about to get a glimpse of Jesus as He is. Last week, I, I mentioned that our, our greatest need. Is not self-actualization. We, we, this morning in our Connect group, uh, we were, we we're rehashing some of that this morning. You know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs is a crock. It's a load. Remember, this guy's an atheist. We don't function in regard to need from the worldview and foundation of atheism. You don't take a hierarchy of needs from a person who starts with what the psalmist says is a fool. Thank you, glory. I know that we're, I know, thank you, Kelly. You made my day. Praise God. We don't begin there. We we have to understand that our greatest need is not food and water and sex and Shelter and whatever, it's, it's not our greatest need. And, and so much of that consumes our pursuit. We pursue things that are maybe 20th down the list and are even questionable as to whether or not they're even needs. And we pursue them as number ones. And our greatest need is not the realization of ourselves, discovering who we are. All of those things pale in comparison to the point. Our greatest need is to see and savor Jesus Christ. That's why the book starts with this wonderful introduction. The unveiling, the apocalypsis, the revealing. The uncovering of Jesus Christ. For His churches to see Him as He is. Because that's their greatest need. When you you come to this book, remember it's, it's a letter. We covered that last week. Written to seven churches who are being persecuted for their faith in Jesus. And John doesn't say, your greatest need is to find cover. Your greatest need is to be preserved. Your greatest need is to find shelter and to make sure there are provisions for you unless if they come after you. Your greatest need is to get some stock in place so that you can survive. No. Greatest need is to see the King as He is. That's backward of a fallen worldview. That our greatest need could actually not be water, but Jesus It's unfathomable in our context to imagine that the greatest need for oneself is not to seek one's self-interest, but to know intimately one's creator, i.e. Jesus. When I make that statement, I, I want you to hear creator, not this nebulous, inclusive idea of a generic God, but... Creator Jesus. Colossians 1, 15 and 16. Creator Jesus. Who by whom and through whom and for whom all things are created and exist. John Piper threw this out uh, for the world to enjoy this week. A nice little statement that I felt really epitomized that statement. And it's people don't enjoy salt. They enjoy what is salted We are the salt of the earth. We do not exist for ourselves. We do not exist for us. This this is why so many people who pursue themselves and to make much of themselves and to meet their self-actualization are miserable. Because they're pursuing emptiness. Pursuing a black hole of nothing they wake up and wonder, where's the meaning? There is none. If we pursue us, we seek us, we seek nothing. People don't enjoy salt. They enjoy what's salted. We're the salt of the earth, so therefore we can't exist for ourselves. We exist for Jesus. We exist to know Jesus. And in that, and in only that, are we satisfied, satiated, and filled. Contextually speaking, for the book of Revelation, perhaps some would say to these churches that are being written to that escaping is their greatest need. Getting away from persecution, but getting away from persecution or escaping, or even for that matter, escaping the theological wrangling that they are having to do to defend the faith is not their greatest need. Escaping, maybe fighting for truth, does not ultimately save the day. What if they get you later? What happens when truth gets challenged again? Some might argue that their greatest need may to just be faithful. Just be faithful. Hang on. Hold on. Because it will all be over in a little bit. Some might say that your difficulty's going to end. They'll kill you and it'll all be over and you'll go be with Jesus. But just hanging around and just getting through the pain. and Getting it over with is not their greatest need. Hanging on will not ultimately save the day. What happens if they don't kill you? And they just keep coming after you. You see these... Seven churches' greatest need was to see Jesus as He he is and to know Him as He is. And I would argue that is also our greatest need. See, we know little of persecution. We know the persecution of a worldview that robs us and beats us. That says we are our greatest end. And perhaps we are our own best persecution. And I would argue that we don't need to see us anymore. We don't need to see our needs anymore. We must see Jesus. And Today I'm going to take a look at the second part of this verse. To help us get an introductory glimpse of the King. And then what comes to us, the church, that is ultimately, ultimately satisfying. Got an email from a person uh, that I have been working with over the years, and in uh, Grace was able to uh, get some resources in their hands to help them again to process some thoughts and some ideas. And um, I asked them if they would allow me to read a portion of this email, and they said, "Yeah." I'm just going to read it raw, okay? I really believe and feel like there was a veil over my eyes. Now, just Okay, I'm just going to read it. I, I will say this. I really believe, I feel like there was a veil over my eyes. And I feel like the God I'm really getting to know this time is a completely different God than the one I thought I knew. The God of Pre-Christmas 2010 was a dictator of sorts. I mean, not really one, but that's how I saw him. Selfish, demanding, mean. But that's not all at all what I see now. That's not at all how I see him. I feel like for ten years or so, I've been sifting my life through one of those flower sifters. Taking the flower and just sifting and sifting and sifting until there's almost nothing left of it. And I've looked at that and said, okay, I'll just have to be happy with that. This is what I'm dealt. This is the way my life's going to be. And I'll just have to find happiness in this. But I didn't realize until very recently just how incredibly unhappy I was. And it didn't matter how many steps toward the Father I tried to take. I wasn't ready to take them, so they were futile. This is so incredibly different. I'm so excited about who I am coming to know. I've been reading about belief versus conversion. That everybody can say they believe, but it's the conversion of one's life that God is looking for. And that conversion is what leads to the true saving faith in Jesus. And I realized that last night. I was never really ready or willing to give up the things of this world that I love so much. I was never ready to say, God, you are so much better than this or that. But I don't know what's happened, but I can't imagine anything greater. I don't know what's happened, but I can't imagine anything greater. For the first time in my life, I want Jesus to be my treasure. And I actually understand that. See, this person has seen him, they've tasted him. It's gone past this nebulous concept of God into. The, the, you hear the words, I feel like there's a veil been taken over my eyes. Have I read that passage? That the God of this age has blinded their minds. But they got it. The veil's been removed, and now I see him. I see him. I, I can't help but always hearken back to the times in the Chronicles of Narnia when Lucy would see Aslan and the other I can't see him. He said, I saw him and informed her decision making. And 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 Lewis got that, and that's why he wrote that into such picturesque form, so that we could get this. Dude, they see something I don't see. Yeah, you see the gospel. They see the risen Christ ruling the nations well, who's awesome and good and holy and right, and that satisfies the soul. That's the source of happy. Not the pursuit of oneself, not the pursuit of things, not the pursuit of career, not the pursuit of prestige, position. I saw the king. And I can't imagine I can't imagine anything greater. Do you know what that's like? I mean, is that is that what you've tasted? Have you believed nebulously in this concept of God and so much of facts floating around in your head? Or have you seen him? And you can't imagine anything greater than seeing Him and tasting the air that's around Him. That's conversion. That's transformation. That's what the gospel does. That was the seven churches' greatest need. That's our greatest need. Not that we get a bunch of facts squared away. Facts are good. But if facts don't point us to tasting the reality of Jesus as He is, they're not facts. Our greatest need, along with these seven churches, greatest need is to see and savor Jesus Christ. And when we do that, all things, including their persecution, or whatever it is that befalls us, will begin to pale in comparison. It's an old song. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And the things of earth will go strangely dim. In the light of his glory and grace. You ever looked into a bright light. And then looked away at everything else. Notice how dim and funky and fuzzy everything else was. That's kind, of, that's kind of the experience. Take a look at Jesus as he is. And everything else just sort of. Eh. So what? That's, that's what we need. That's what we need. Verse 4. John. To the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. Let's take a look at these two very short verses very quickly. I want you to note, first point, what is it in this introductory glimpse that we need to see, that we need to taste, that is ultimately satisfying? Point number one, it is the blessing from our triune God. This blessing from our triune God. Going back to verse 3, blesses one who reads, Allowed the words of this prophecy and bless are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth. There's this promise to these churches, there's a promise to us that when we read, When we hear and we keep what is written, there is blessedness that comes to us. Last week we looked at this little word very quickly that helps us to see this word means a happy condition of. In other words, there's a happy factor for these people when they hear, when they read it, when they keep it. And it means happy. And there's no magical hocus pocus exegesis you do with it. and It means happy. Blessed are those who hear this, who read it, and who do it. And in grace and peace to you, from this triune God. There is a blessing of grace and peace to the people of God when they see and savor Jesus Christ. This blessing that we receive from the Father is grace and peace. We spend a lot of time talking about what grace and peace is, but I think it's pretty easy grace the power grace is so magnificently broad and wide if you're breathing today you've been graced if you walked in here today if you came through those doors you've been graced if your taste buds work you've been graced if they don't you've still been graced If your brain waves are going off, you've been graced. The very power of God to sustain life, to show mercy and kindness. If you're not incinerated today because of your sin, you've been graced. The cross has been effective for you. Grace and peace to you, my people. Contextually, for these seven churches who are undergoing a hot and intense persecution... The power of God to save and sustain and to uphold even if He doesn't save. And to give grace even in death. And peace in death. Grace and peace to you. And even more so, blessed. Blessed are you. Happy are you. Even if you die, happy are you. Even if they get you, happy are you. Even if it's hard, happier you. There is a blessing given to these people from the Father coming in the form of multiple, multiple and multitudes and multitudes of grace and peace. This, this becomes the foundation of a theology of suffering in which we have the God-given capacity to joyfully accept, as a writer of Hebrews says, the plundering of our property because we have a greater reward. That's just backward of our worldview, isn't it? That's backward of Western culture. And then they took my stuff. Isn't this awesome? They threw my friends in jail and I'm next. This is great. We don't think like that, do we? John says to you, these seven churches, blessed are you in grace and peace to you from him who was and who is and who is to come. There is a blessing on the people of God when they see Jesus as he is. Perhaps we lack power and empowerment to do the work in front of us because we don't see him. Perhaps we operate in our strength. Perhaps we, we do the things we're supposed to do and we're miserable in doing them because we just do them out of us and not out of seeing the King. Could it be that the reason we, we quit and we, we stop the work is because we need to see Jesus. And in seeing Him, there is grace and peace that comes upon us. In this blessed, happy state of the people of God who see Jesus as He is. There's Trinitarian blessing to the people of God as they see Jesus. I want to say to you today, guys, your peace is found in Christ alone. Not in things working out good for you. Not in things working out how you define good to be. Successful. 2.3 2.3 kids, picket fence and a dog and three cars and a lake house. That that that's not where grace and peace are at. That's not success. I would argue that's a little piece of hell. You got to manage that. You got to pay taxes on that. Where's success in that? I would argue our grace and peace is coming when we receive this happy condition and multiplied grace and peace from the Father because we've seen the King as He is. I would argue your greatest pursuit today would be to lay eyes on Jesus in some way. In this text, to see Him, to see Him exalted, to see Him lifted up, to have Him enthroned on your praises today. Because there is the happy condition of a people who has multiplied grace and peace given to them from the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Do you need that kind of blessing? Do you need to see Him today? Do you need to realize He rules the nations well? We all do. And blessed, happy is the condition of those people who see that. You see a heart that's been transformed? That's what it pants for. A heart that hadn't been conform, con, uh, transformed by the gospel means nothing. We need to see Him and have that joy rooted in us from the Father in multitudes and multitudes of graces and peace to us in the middle of our context. There's a blessing from us, but it's also a blessing coming from the triune God. I think it's vital. And He's absolutely 100% vital. We're going to do a full-blown deal on the Trinity today. But I think it's vital that you see and hear and taste in the second part of verse 4 and then verse 5. The fact that this blessing is Trinitarian in nature. The Trinitarian reality of our great God defines so much of life. That if we fixate on one person of the Trinity, we have a tendency and even can miss some of the greatest implications for living on the face of the planet. Relationships are meaningless if they are not rooted in the triune nature of God in relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Relationship is rooted in the Trinity and inter-Trinitarian love, not in your concern for each other. This blessing comes from the triune God. Listen carefully. Grace to you and peace from, from, directionally, grace and peace from, coming from Him who is and who was and who is to come, comma, and from the seven spirits who are before His throne, comma, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. First, the Father the first element of this blessing through grace and peace comes in the name of the father it reflects the name of god that is revealed to moses in exodus 314 you guys know the passage moses is called by god to go tell the people that their god is going to set them free and moses says if they're to say what's his name what am i to say tell them i am Has sent you. In a Jerusalem commentary on Deuteronomy 32.29. The writer of this commentary. Expands upon this idea of I am who I am. The name Yahweh I am. And gives this commentary by saying. I am he who is and who was and I am he who will be they took, Jewish theologians took the I Am name so very seriously they understood the eternal implications of I Am. And this Jewish commentary on these passages was the standard by which Jewish rabbis and scholars taught on the name of God. And when John picks up on this, being a good Jewish boy, when he says from Him who is and who was and who is to come, it is. A reference to this God of the Old Testament, the God of the Bible, who is defined as I am. And why this is absolutely significant is because he says finally in verse 5, also from Jesus Christ the Son. The implication of this is this, that the Father and the Son are one yet distinct, thereby making and exalting Jesus above all things. This is so radically vital that they wanted to kill Jesus for it. When Jesus comes along and He begins to teach on who He is, the Gospel of John records Him speaking and debating with the Pharisees. And they understood the implication of what Jesus was saying, which is why they wanted to stone Him. Jesus saying before Abraham was, I am. In other words, I am, I am. And if He wasn't, He's a liar. So therefore the implication was severe. Jesus was saying, I am that God. And when John picks up on this language here, what he's saying is, this Jesus, who we need to see, is God and there is no other. And for the folks receiving this letter, this was massive. Because they, they didn't live in a Christian context. They lived in a polytheistic, pagan context in which multiple deities were always coming at them. There was always some kind of spiritual conflict related to other religions. And they were even persecuted because of their faith in Jesus, because of the other religious beliefs around them. And for John to write to them and remind them there's one king, that king is Jesus. And he's the God of the Old Testament. He's the God of the Bible. He's the God of the Scriptures. He's the creator of all things. He was reminding them, you have one God. That God is Jesus. So therefore, you need to see Him. I would argue that the same is true for us. We may not have multiple religions pushing in on us. But what we do have is the religion of self. The religion of me, myself, and I. And we need to be reminded that there is one God and he is Jesus. So this designation that this blessing comes from the Father. Connected to the Son is huge. Making what John is writing to them very distinct and very unique. And reminding them and those around them there is only one God. When we get to the letters to the churches, you will see how vital that's going to be. This blessing also comes from the Holy Spirit. Verse 4, and from the seven spirits who are before His throne. In this context, the seven spirits before His throne, quoting D.A. Carson here, must denote the Holy Spirit. There is a reminiscence here in Zechariah 4, 6, and 10. And the Holy Spirit, as the spirit of the seven churches and therefore of the whole church... The Holy Spirit is one person, but he also appears as seven spirits, representing the perfection of God and as the seven torches of fire and the seven eyes to express his omniscience and his omnipresence. This is one of the pieces of revelation that becomes difficult to deal with. But this reference to these seven spirits is not intended for us to see and think that, wow, God has seven spirits who operate in the place of the Holy Spirit. No. No. This is pointing to the perfection and the omniscience and the omnipresence of the Holy Spirit. In other words, this blessing comes from the Father, but this blessing also comes from the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is present. He's omniscient. He is God. He knows all things. He sees all things. His mission is to exalt the Son. And He is present. And He also is a source of blessing. And then third and finally, the Son. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth. The description of Jesus in verse 5 is absolutely apt and perfect for the believers for whom revelation was first directed. Jesus is called the witness. He died on account of his witness. And what's interesting is the Greek term for witness comes into English as martyr. So Jesus is the witness to the glory of God. He's also called the firstborn from the dead, indicating that by His resurrection, Jesus assumes the first place in the kingdom and therefore opened up to us the ability to enter the kingdom. And then He's called the ruler of kings on earth and it points to His supremacy over the hostile rulers of the world. So He asks the question, why does this matter? This is a lot of doctrinal mumbo-jumbo. Why in the world does this matter? Ready? First John 1, three says this. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you. Comma. So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son Jesus Christ. Our fellowship together as a church. These churches fellowship together as the church. Is predicated on fellowship with the entire Trinity. We enjoy fellowship with each person of the Trinity. With the Father, with the Son, and with the Holy Spirit. And this is possible because each person of the Trinity communicates with us in a way that corresponds to his unique role in creation, in providence, and in salvation. Listen to John Owen. You might have heard of a guy named John Owen. Beast. Go pick up some dead guys and read them. John Owen. Absolute beast. He wrote in this book, Communion with God. The Father communicates himself to us by the way of original authority, the Son from a purchased treasury and the Spirit by an immediate efficacy. In other words, each person of the Trinity communicates with us distinctly in the sense that we may discern from which person particular realizations of the grace of God comes to us. Yet, particular fellowship with each person of the Trinity is always one facet of ongoing communion with all three. We experience the might and power of the God of all creation from the Father. We experience salvation and entrance into the kingdom through the sacrifice of the Son. And we are guided into truth and shepherded and counseled by the Holy Spirit. And all three of those are active graces of God that we need when we see Jesus exalted. Perhaps we don't need to go to a counselor before we go to Holy Spirit. I'm not saying counselors are wrong. They're vital and needed. But a counselor that does not depend upon Holy Spirit as the paracletos first. First! is off base. The counselor is Holy Spirit. And any other counselor must follow Holy Spirit's lead. We don't save, people aren't saved because of anything other than the work of Jesus on the cross. So that's why we preach Jesus in the cross. We need might and power from God the Father to raise to life us daily. So that every day as you commune with God, you're communing, you're communing with the Trinity. This is why so much of Christian history has in it this Trinitarian stuff. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Because we relate to all three yet one. And this is vital for these young Christians who are undergoing this persecution to remember and know. So ask this question in closing. What are the implications of this Trinitarian blessing? Again, why does this matter? Well, here we go. Number one, Humility humility when we take our minds to dwell upon the blessing of god from the triune nature of god three distinct persons yet one god we are humble perhaps the most complex perhaps the absolute most difficult doctrine to wrangle with in christianity is the trinity They spent a couple hundred years wrangling over this to get it right, to understand what Jesus said and to make sense of it. Yet it is the most important and most distinct feature of Christianity. One God, three distinct persons, all equal yet with different functions. And as we study that, it is infinitely and ultimately humbling that we become people who are under the mighty hand of God, and we bow the knee and we say, Father, as much as we get, we still don't get it, and we humble ourselves before you. you. say, why does that matter? It matters like this. There can never be any of us inside who exalts ourselves as saying we get it. We're always together in humility. Humility can and should be a force that binds us together in unification. When we all come together and say, you know what? I don't fully get that. Neither do I. Let's get on our knees and ask Father for help. It's humbling. And humility builds fellowship. When you get people who exalt themselves as being superior, you can divide. These churches needed unification. And John reminds them on the front end of the triune blessing from God. And the fact that they must be humble. There's love. Number two, there's love. Love is built upon the nature of God, not proper cultural affection toward each other. We have a tendency to define love according to the way our culture defines love. In our culture, it happens to be leftover remnants of British culture on nicety toward each other. We love each other if we, hi, how you doing? Fine, me too. Good, good to see you amen glory we smile and we never hold each other accountable we just sort of accept oh it's so i'm so sorry man that's tough man i know you're in sin but you know let's go let's go talk about it man let's you know that's good that's good yeah yeah, yeah. that's not love love does not equal acceptance of wrong as it's as if it's okay Love is defined by the very character of God. And it is defined in an inner trinitarian fashion. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. The Spirit loves the Son. The Son loves the Spirit. The Spirit loves the Father. The Father loves the Spirit. And that definition of love is how we must define love. We'll deal with this more as we move through the book. Introductory. Number three, worship. Our worship is affected by the Trinity. When we come together for corporate worship, that is Holy Spirit response. Our job is to come and respond to the Spirit of God as He prompts us to bring praise to the Son, to the Father. It is a Trinitarian act. Worship is a Trinitarian act. It creates community. As we focus on this Trinitarian blessing, there is community. The very foundation of fellowship is built in the Trinity. We imitate the relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit. All of our relationships are built in the Trinity. Our submission to one another, our treatment of one another as equals, yet different and distinct, comes from the Trinity. Marriage relationships are defined from this. This is why man and woman are equal, yet different in role and function. Father and Son are equal, God. Yet the Son submits to the Father. John five nineteen. Built in the Trinity. There's unified diversity. Each person of the Trinity has a different role, yet they're unified in the same mission. They're never divided. We as a church are different, distinct, and just look around. Yet we have one mission. We submit to one another out of reverence for God, the Scripture says, because that's how the Godhead operates. And then there's joy, because joy emanates from the Father and the Son as they take delight in each other. And therefore, as we take delight in the Lord, we take delight in each other, and there's joy in the middle of the fellowship, and that comes out of the Trinity. This matters. This matters to these churches, and it matters to us. And what we bring to the table... And what we want to show you and what I want to leave you with every week as we walk through Revelation is that our mission is to see Jesus as he is. And this morning there is a blessing offered for those who see him, who hear these words read, who listen to them, who read them themselves and keep what is written. And this morning my challenge to you is keep What is written in this Trinitarian blessing. And that is to focus your heart's attention. Focus your mind's attention. Focus your heart's affection on the truth that our God is three at one. And relate to each person of the Trinity as he would have you relate to him. Because I promise you there will be a multitude of things that will come against you. And to destroy your relationship with Father, Son, and Spirit. And to distract you from that as well. And so this morning, my invitation to you is to come and see him as he is. And he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I promise you this, as a church, as a church, when we do that, we will be hard to split and divide. And come what may, come what may, regardless of what happens global, we can be a tight body. We can weather the storm because we've seen the King. We've seen Jesus. And that is our greatest need. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, this morning as we set our hearts' affection and our minds' attention on You, I have absolutely no doubt, I have absolutely no doubt that there will be many distractions that may come I have absolutely no doubt that there will be many temptations to remove our eyes from the person and work of Jesus Christ. There will be many temptations to despise one another. There will be many temptations to doubt truth. There will be many distractions from the point So this morning, I want to ask you for the blessed, happy condition of your people through abundant grace and peace from you, Father, from you, Son, who rules the kings of the earth, and from you, Spirit, who is our guide to truth. I ask that you would occupy our minds with you, occupy our affections with you, so that we can't be easily distracted. Father, there are, there are amazing opportunities on the horizon. Perspectives begins tonight. Some of us are absolutely nervous about that and we've worked hard. And there will be a ton of things to distract our attention, but I ask for us that you would help us to center our mind's attention and heart's affection on Jesus with the counsel of the Spirit to the glory of the Father. I pray for those who are coming to the class, that You would not allow anything to distract them from seeing You. For Vody that's coming up, I pray that You would remove any distraction from seeing You, Jesus. Holy Spirit, be our guide to truth. Lord, our greatest need is You. So this morning, as we come to respond to Your invitation to receive grace and peace, and ultimate happiness in seeing Jesus. I pray that you would cause us to sing. You'd give us a desire to sing. That you'd sit enthroned on the praises of your people. And you'd be glorified. And we would be encouraged. Lord Jesus, we need to see you.